22, and we're going to read the, from verse uh, 23 there. So Ezekiel 22 from verse 23. There we read, again the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the land, you are a land that has had no rain or showers in the day of wrath. There is a conspiracy of her princes within her like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, take treasures and precious things and make many widows within her. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean, and they shut their eyes to, my, to the keeping of my Sabbaths, so that I am profaned among them. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the, so when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and would stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my, fierce, with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, as kids, we, uh, we grow up playing lots of different types of games, don't we? And one of the games that I'm sure most of us played as kids was the game Follow the Leader. Uh, you know how it goes. Kids, uh, you have a bunch of them. You have one of them, and they take their turn at being the leader, and everybody else follows them. And the basic idea of the game is that you lead in such a way that kids behind you find it difficult to follow. <laughs> So you climb over things and you climb under other things and you swing around poles and you speed up and you slow down and you just make it more and more difficult for those behind you to keep up with you. It's a fun game and I'm sure that many of us have played it. Now as adults, we play our own versions of Follow the Leader as well, except in our version, the rules are completely reversed. Instead of being a game where you want to lose people behind you, you want to make it difficult for them to follow you, we make it so that people can follow you more easily. The object of the game is to have as many people behind you following you as you can. And so we have a very good 21st equivalent for adults to follow the leader. It's called Twitter. Uh, you put your name up on this thing and you, you say things and you proclaim things and you see how many people you can get to follow you. And you can judge your worth or you can judge your uh, success by how many hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people uh, you have following you. But we've been playing this game from before Twitter as well. Think about our recent history uh, as a world. We've had leaders who have stood up, who've had thousands, millions of people following them, and usually down a merry pathway to destruction. Think about Stalinist Russia or Nazi Germany. Think about dictators like Idi Amin and Pol Pot. Millions of people following them in very destructive ways. Think about some of the cult leaders, Jim Jones, David Koresh. Thousands of people, hundreds of people following them to their deaths. 
follow the leader as an adult game can be a very dangerous one. Now today when we read Ezekiel 22, we read about a very dangerous, a very deadly game of follow the leader. We read about what happens when we are led by idols and we are led by those who are led by idols. Now, last week as we continued our walk through Ezekiel, we began looking at some of the things that were creating or causing this great judgment to come on God's people. And we were looking at them as a warning to us and as a correction to our lives. We're looking at them because we want to know what it was that brought about such great judgment from God. And we looked at the issue of idols of the heart. Those things that draw our love. Those things that demand our attention. Those things from which we seek peace and love and security and happiness. And we saw that idols is not just something for Old Testament people thousands of years ago or those in deepest, darkest Africa. But idols are very real in our world and in our lives as well. And today we want to have a look at the fruit of idolatry. What is happening to a life that is led by these idols? What is happening when we are led by those who are led by these idols? And if you have an outline uh, in front of you, which you should have got on the way in, we're going to have a look at these idols. Uh, we're going to have a look at what they cause or the fruit of these idols and what they cause and God's plan to remedy them. Now, as we've mentioned before, today is what we celebrate in the Christian calendar as the day of Pentecost. We celebrate and we remember the day when God poured his Holy Spirit onto his church. And there are many aspects of the Holy Spirit's work, but one of the things that we talk about, we talk about the Spirit, is we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. We are talking about the kind of character that a life that is led by the Holy Spirit produces. We're talking about the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit brings into a life as it changes and shapes and renews us from the inside out. But what happens when we're not led and shaped and changed by the Holy Spirit? What happens when we're led, shaped, and changed by idols? What kind of fruit does that produce? Well, here in Ezekiel, we get a picture of, of what it produces. And there's two things that I want us to notice in particular. The first thing is this, is that a life that is showing the fruit of idols is a life that is bound by the mistreatment of others. It's a life that uses others for selfish gain. Have a look at what it says here in verse 25. It says, There is a conspiracy of her princes within her, the city of Jerusalem, like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people. They take treasures and precious things and make many widows within her. Verse 27. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Verse 29. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. What's going on here in, in Jerusalem? Well, its leaders and then followed by the people are those that are mistreating others around them. Violence, we read of. Making widows. Taking treasures. We read about uh, killing, shedding blood. 
and particularly the abuse of the most vulnerable in the land. The weak, the uh, needy, the widow, the fatherless, uh, the orphans. Those are being used for selfish gain. And it makes sense though, doesn't it? If you're following idols, and idols are all about me, me getting what me wants, you're going to show that kind of fruit when it comes to relating to other people. You've got to remember who this is written to. This is not written to any old nation. This is written to Israel. Israel who knew themselves what it was to be weak and poor and oppressed. Israel who was in Egypt who knew what it was to be slaves and taken advantage of. And one of the things that God has said to them again and again throughout the Old Testament is you know what it was like to be there. You know what it's like to be at the butt end of life. You know what it's like to be mistreated and hurt and oppressed and abused. So look after each other. Care for each other. And particularly care for those who are weak and vulnerable in your society. And the fruit of the idol is to mistreat. To see people as competitors. To see them as the steps to climb on your way to success or power or money or whatever it is. The second fruit of idol that we see uh, going on here is not just the mistreatment of others, but it's self-serving religion. It's a religion which actually seeks to justify my sinful behavior. Have a look at what it says here in verse 26. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean, and they shut, out, shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths so that I'm profaned among her, them. Then verse 28, her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. They say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. Those people within the nations, those who have been set aside and set apart to guide the nation in the things of God are using their position to simply justify what they and others around them are doing. The priests, those who are guardians of the temple, they are guardians of holiness in the nation, are saying, "Ah, there's no such thing as holy and unholy, as clean and unclean. You, you can do whatever you like. You, you want to live that way? That's okay. There's no sense of this is right and this is wrong. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. The prophets, those who are meant to speak God's word, those who are meant to speak clearly what God says, who are supposed to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, they are giving false prophecies. They're saying God says it's okay. God says it's good. Go for it. They are putting a thin veneer of religious activity over the top of a life that is dedicated to idols and dedicated to self. They are using religion to justify their idolatry and their sinful lives. They're excusing it and saying that God says that this is okay. Again, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you are led by idols, 
you'll show the fruit of idols. And you use whatever religious justification you can. See, isn't this just what we see going on in the world around us? Isn't this what we see and we experience even in Australia? I mean, we may not have carvings of stone and wood around about us. We may not bow down and offer up our children and other sacrifices. But we see the fruit of idolatry all around us. We live in a world that loves to reject God's word. We live in a time which says truth is relative. We live in a society which once used to say, yes, God leads us and God shapes our lives, but does so no longer. We see churches around about us, even whole denominations, that used to take God's word seriously, that used to strive for holiness, that used to hold firm to the gospel, who've abandoned it, who've said, Oh, God's word was for then. We can shape things for now. We live in a time where we seek to justify our actions and even put a religious spin on it all. It says we've got to be more open, more accepting. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Who, who, who are we to judge? We live in a world where millions are oppressed and kept in poverty. By the, by the privilege for you. We live in a, in a time where we will gladly buy and accept goods created by, made by those on minimum wage so that we can simply accumulate more. We live in a time where if a relationship no longer serves you and serves your purpose, you can just cast it aside. When someone has reached their use-by date in your life, you don't have to think about them anymore. But even more confronting than that is that it's not just the time in which we live. That is also a reflection of our own lives and our own hearts. When we look in the mirror, that is often the person who is looking back at us. We like to justify our idols, and excuse them, even make them spiritual. We say, well, well, God gave me that desire to be rich or powerful or influential or be sexually fulfilled. Surely he intends then that I fulfill that. We say, well, God doesn't really address that in his word, so he must be giving us some freedom to kind of discover our own path in that. We say, well, that, that was written for a culture that's very different in, to our own. God would be saying something very different to us today. We justify our self-serving relationships. Well, that person really can't give me what I want, but that person can. I, I should be seen talking to them. They, they can help me out. I'll, I'll do something for them, and then they will feel obliged to do something Back for me. This is the fruit of the idols of our heart. A life that mistreats others and a life of self-serving religion. So what, is, what does God do? What does God think? Turn with me to verse 30. 
This is God's conclusion. He says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. God goes looking for a leader, a right leader, who will love the people enough to call out a warning. He was looking for a leader who will stand in the gap, who will build up the wall. Now turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 13 uh, from verse 3, where this idea of building up the wall or, or standing in the gap uh, first comes. Ezekiel 13 from verse 3. This is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. God's been saying there is a disaster coming. There is a hideous enemy coming and your wall has a hole in it. Now, for a wall to have a hole in it means that it's weak. It's defenseless. It's open to infiltration. God is looking for a leader who will rebuild the wall, who will stand in the gap who will warn the people that this disaster is coming, who will call them to repentance, who will tell them God is bringing judgment. You need to return to him. And yet God concludes there in verse 30. But I found none. The problem is that this, this fruit of idols, this idolatry starts with the leaders of God's people. It starts with those who are meant to lead God's people in His way. With those who are there to warn, to guide, to instruct. There to express uh, God's desire for their lives. Who are there to love the people enough to shout out warning that this disaster is coming. But yet they have conspired together, says God. They're working together. And so the nation, the people, are just following. See, throughout Scripture, we have this expectant hope that there will be someone who will rebuild the wall, who will stand in the gap. We have this hope expressed in individuals, people who, who honor God, who love God, who love the people and who want to lead in the right way. We have that hope expressed in, in people like Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and prophets like, uh, like Ezekiel. We have that hope expressed that here might be the one who will stand in the gap, who will love God's people, who will warn them, who will lead them in the right way. But each time we find that they are still pointing to someone, something else. That they are not it. David seems to be the, you know, the best candidate. But he fails. And he's told that one will come even greater than him. Moses, for a long time, seems to be that one who will do it. But he too fails. And he too then speaks of a prophet even greater than him who is to come. The Bible is constantly looking for and hoping for this one who will stand in the gap. Who will be a mediator between God and his people, between his people and the Lord. 
a hope that is finally and only expressed in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. The one who really does stand in the gap. The one who comes as the ultimate mediator between God and people. He comes finally with love for God's people that he brings God's word to us, not in a selfish way. Who warns, who commands, who calls people back to God in repentance. In Jesus, we finally have one who stands on our behalf in the gap. Who mediates for sin, who, who suffers and dies for sin. Who cleanses us and who brings us back to God. Finally, in Christ, we have one who loves his people enough to suffer and die for them. To intercede for them, to call them back to the Father. You see, in Jesus, we have one who is not only Savior, but is also Lord. One who suffers and dies for his people to save them. One who reigns as king to lead us. We have in Jesus one who not only is to be humbly bowed before, but one who is to be humbly followed as he leads us into right living and right relationship with God the Father. We have one who stands in the gap on our behalf to restore that broken relationship and to lead people back into real eternal life. You see, this Jesus is one who is not just to be remembered for what he did 2,000 years ago, but he's one that is to be followed in life and in the world today. He's the one who rose from the dead, who ascended to heaven, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit on his church to enable his church to be renewed and restored, to live in this real, living, daily relationship with our Father. He's the one who both teaches and enables this real life. He teaches and he enables real, living, worshipful relationship. With God the Father. We see him model it on his earthly life, don't we? We see him model prayer and obedience. We see him model doing God's will, even in the midst of suffering. We, we see him showing us what it is to be in this real living relationship. But he not only shows us, but he enables it. He takes residence in our life and he conquers the idols of our heart. He changes us from the inside out so that we no longer live and breathe for ourselves, but we live and we breathe, breathe for our Heavenly Father. He enables communication with God. He enables a community to function, to love, and to serve each other. This Jesus also models and he teaches and he enables real relationships with each other. Relationships where we no longer view each other as competitors or steps to climb on our way to whatever, but people that we can love and serve and lay down our life for. He models that in his earthly life as he loves his disciples, as he loves people, as he serves them, as he lays down his life. We hear him teaching that we are to follow in his footsteps. We hear him telling us what it means to be united, to be at one, to forgive each other, and to serve one another with the gifts that he's given. And then we see that Jesus not only teaches it, but he enables it. 
by changing our hearts from the inside, by showing us himself and his work, he shows us what we're to be to each other. And so as we desire to be those who display the fruit of the Spirit rather than the fruit of idol, we've got to ask ourselves that very hard and pointed question. Are we living in a real relationship with this Jesus whereby he changes us and shapes us and enables us to love and to serve God and to love and serve each other? Are we those who are actively reading his word, not just as a theology textbook, not just as information, but as transformation to have our hearts and our lives shaped by God the Father, by the work of the Spirit? When we study it and we read it together, are we reading it so that we may grow in our love for the Lord, so we may be reminded again and again of what He's done for us, so that we may shaped to live life for His purpose, and so that we might be shaped for His mission and His work in this world? Are we those in this real living relationship with the Father through prayer? Are we communicating with our Lord? Are we bringing our needs before Him? Are we asking for Him to change us on the inside? To show and to dismantle the idols of our hearts? To fill us with His Holy Spirit? Are we those that are open to His pruning work? To being shaped by the Father, by the gardener? To, do, to show more fruit in our lives? Are we willing to see Suffering and hardship as that environment for pruning. Where God makes us more dependent on himself and less dependent on us. When we get together today in our home groups for coffee afterwards, are we encouraging one another to be living in this relationship with Jesus? Are we spurring each other on, reminding each one another of the gospel, reminding us each other of the great work of Christ, having our hearts softened and changed to be responding to our Savior? See, we have been given a king in this world who is unlike any other example that we'll see going on around us. A king who leads us in God's right paths. A king who loves his people and who loves his world and is bringing a new and a right and a good kingdom into it. A king that is leading us in paths of righteousness. A king that is leading us in his mission and his purpose. Are we following that king? Are we having hearts and lives that are changed by that king? Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your saving and your refining work. We thank you for your life and your death on our behalf. We thank you that you stood in the gap and took the punishment that was ours by right. We thank you that you give us a new, fresh, and a right life. And we thank you that you're still leading and guiding your people. We thank you that you're still refining us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, make us open and receptive to that work that you might be honored and praised. In your name we ask. Amen.